You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and you can find me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs. And the show is brought to you by the godfather of Sass himself, Mr. Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. But diving straight into the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome G2 Patel to the hot seat today. Now, G2 is the Senior Vice President of Platform and Chief Strategy Officer at Box, where he leads the Box platform organisation, driving the strategy of the platform business and developer relations. He also oversees the corporate strategy and development organisation for Box, Prior to joining Box, Patel was General Manager and Chief Executive of EMC's Simplicity Business Unit. And prior to EMC, G2 was President of DocuLabs, a research and advisory firm focused on collaboration and content management across a range of industries. I do also want to say a huge thank you to the wonderful Aaron Levy and the team at Box for the intro today and for all they've done to make this episode possible. We really do appreciate it. But before we dive into the show today, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business. And that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon and more. Reviews.io is the only solution on the market which allows businesses to see a 360 degree view of their reputation across the web with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that's looking to increase conversions, build customer trust and increase visibility on Google. Unlike competing platforms, Reviews.io do not agree with long-term contracts and even has a 15-day trial for all Sasta listeners, simply head over to reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. But it's now time for me to shut up and I'm thrilled to hand over to G2 Patel, Chief Strategy Officer at Box. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. G2, absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today and a huge thank you to Jason at Sasta for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here, Harry. Thank you for having me. I'd love to get started though today with a little about you and how you made your way into SaaS and came to be one of Box's leading execs. Yeah, so the way I, uh, so I ran a think tank advisory firm that was uh, partly owned by Forrester in Chicago for uh, about 17 years. And uh, during that time, I um, crossed paths with the documenting team at EMC and then joined them as CTO. Very quickly found out that they needed to have an external infusion of innovation because they wouldn't be able to get out of the mess that they were in. So we went out and made an acquisition because I was in charge of M&A as well and made an acquisition of a company called Simplicity, scaled that business over two and a half year period to a pretty uh, large scale. And then once we did that, Dell was buying EMC. So we had to kind of sell that to private equity. And Aaron and I had known each other for a while. And so Aaron at the time uh, reached out to me and said, hey, would you mind starting up the platform business for us at Box and running strategy for us? And so here we are. And and speaking of starting up the platform business and building a team like you have done, uh, we often hear that it's all about the people. With that in mind, I'd love to discuss building out high-performing teams, because you've said before that there are three tips to doing this successfully, but you left me on a cliffhanger as to what they were. So talk to me, what are the three tips to building high-performing teams? So the first thing I've found is the quality of the problem that you choose to solve is directly proportional to the quality of talent you can attract. So if you pick a hard problem, you tend to attract really good people. If you pick a mediocre problem, you tend to attract average people. So it's actually equally hard to build a great company with a mediocre problem that's a very probable, likely outcome where you can solve versus something that's a moonshot. 
just largely because you attract a very different kind of caliber of people. So the first one is around picking the right problem to solve. The second one is, you know, in order to maintain a level of agility and responsiveness to the market, especially as you get into startup mode, it's extremely important to make sure that you continue to have small teams. And we really follow the Amazon model of the two pizza team kind of approach where as you scale the business, you have many, many more smaller teams, but try not to have too many big teams because that's where you see a lot of inefficiency and tax in the business as you move forward. So that's the second. So first is pick the right problem. Second one is make sure that your teams are always small and that you give them autonomy to go out and drive. Uh, you know, we call them full stack teams. So try to have as many full stack teams as possible. And then the third one is it's pretty important. And this one is just constantly a struggle because it, there's just a, there's sometimes a shortage of supply, but most companies look at diversity at a company level. So what percentage of our population is of, um, you know, diverse backgrounds. And I believe that diversity should always be looked at at the team level, because if you have diversity at a team level, your company level stats actually reflect diversity, but the reverse isn't true. I'm going to unpick each of those now because there's just too much uh, good stuff to unpack there. So you said first <laughs> about choosing hard problems. Where's the balance yeah. between choosing kind of really inspiring moonshot problems and then choosing something that's almost unattainable and will cause dissatisfaction in a team when it's unreachable, maybe? Yes, yeah, so if you think about most of the great companies that were created, every single one of those problems that was picked just seemed completely absurd and unattainable when they first started. So I think there's, um, you know, there has to be a level of kind of technical diligence where you can see a path to it yourself, but don't really rely too much on how others are portraying their opinion on it. Because if you believe that there is a path to it and you feel like you can get to that point, picking a harder problem typically is a safer bet, which is very counterintuitive. Absolutely. No, no, I, I agree. I'm also intrigued because you mentioned the importance of small teams and said about the two pizza element. At yeah. what stages have you found the dynamics to change within teams and become pro- problematic? You said about the two pizza, as we said there. Have you before witnessed the kind of inflection points within team growth where dynamics change? And when is that? Yeah, so this is another counterintuitive point where most companies feel like as they scale up, they need to have larger teams. And that's in fact not true. People work effectively with small teams of people. So as you scale up, you just need to have many, many more teams, but you don't necessarily need to have teams that are 50, 100 people because at that point in time, it's just really difficult to keep everyone coordinated and 80% of the time is spent on coordinating rather than actually getting work done. Can I ask, with such small, almost uh, segmented, atomistic teams, how do you encourage freedom of information and an an atmosphere of collaboration between the many differing teams? That's That's a great question. So one of the things we do at Box, which is pretty unique, is we have this OKR process that we follow objective and key results and every employee in the company has their OKRs public and every team in the company has their OKRs public and so if you wanted to go out and see what some other team was doing and what their priorities were you just go in the box and you can actually see their OKRs and the benefit of this is you tend to also go out and find dependencies across teams where there might be work that you're doing that's dependent on another team and if they don't have it in the OKR you shouldn't probably put it in your OKR or go out and negotiate with the other team that they need to have it in their OKR but the fact that you have your goals public makes a big difference because it just creates a culture of transparency and accountability that, that, that you otherwise wouldn't have had if, if things are secret. I'm intrigued. You said about OKR 
HR setting, I had someone on the show yesterday who said that you should let your employees choose their own OKRs and then they'll pursue them with passion and vigor. Where do you stand on OKR setting? Who should do it and the accountability that kind of lies within that? Yeah, so the high order bit, the way that we do it is there's a cascading effect to it, right? So if you set the company OKRs in the right way and then each one of the teams knows what they need to go out and achieve at the company level, how they believe they can go out and achieve that is going to largely depend on the team because I fundamentally believe that the lower down in the organization you go, the closer you are to data. And in any debate, you're probably going to be more often uh, kind of correct in the debate the lower down in the org you go because you're the closest to the problem in the data. So the way that we do it is you set the high-level OKRs and then the teams just cascade what they need to do to contribute to the high-level OKRs and then they decide what they're going to do to make sure that that happens. And that goes down all the way to the individual level. Absolutely. So you set the framework and then they kind of work towards it. Absolutely. Yeah. Because otherwise what happens is people just don't feel like there's enough autonomy to go out and think creatively. And most people don't don't wake up going to work saying, I'd love to be told what to do today. Do you agree, do you agree with micromanagement in some circumstances? Well, so each individual that might work for you has to be managed differently. And I think a lot of times what people do is they try to apply the same principles across. But, you know, there's some high order bits that I truly do believe in, which is, you know, Daniel Pink is a great author. If you, um, I love that. If you haven't read his book, he's, he's awesome. And, uh, and his whole kind of concept of autonomy, mastery, purpose makes, makes a lot of sense. And there's another guy named Marcus Buckingham that really talks about how do you double down on people's strengths rather than really focusing on uh, their weaknesses a whole lot. So what we try to do is make sure that you know there's some general principles around give people autonomy, give them accountability, make sure that they're mastering and learning all the time and give them a high order purpose. But the level of assistance or guidance or coaching that might be required varies by individual depending on their experience, depending on their aptitude, their, their, their throughput capacity, all of those pieces. So you can't just treat everyone as the same. And their motivations are different. I wouldn't think of it as micromanagement as much as who needs more coaching versus less are kind of better mindsets to go in with because at regardless of what level it's very neutering to just tell people what to do and expect them to do it that at some point in time that's not inspiring speaking of kind of inspiring there and kind of okr setting obviously box being a public company when results come out and they're good or bad i'm intrigued how do you prevent either kind of dissonance or apathy according to the results and kind of keep a continuous stream of morale going throughout the team yeah this is an area where as we've uh, gotten public, we've learned that it's always good to treat people like adults and tell them what's going on rather than trying to sugarcoat things. We spend as much time on what's not working in the business as we do on what is working in the business. There's high order bits that we have to be completely excited about, but progress doesn't get made until you actually tackle the hard problems that can actually get you to be a better company. So um, one of the things that we tend to do is, in fact, one of the things we have is every employee within Box is treated as an insider. And we, we share far more information with them than what, what you would with most employees as a public company. I mean, I've worked at public companies in the past, and we share much more information with our employees, but then we actually classify them as insiders, where they can, you know, their, their trading windows get narrowed. Mm-hmm. But what that does is gives them a tremendous amount of sense of ownership on what needs to be done to fix the problem, and they're part of the solution now, rather than just waiting for what's management going to do, which is a massively counterproductive way of going out and working through well. Mm-hmm. 
issues. And speaking of the teams there, as we said, I'm intrigued because I had Layla Sturdy, GP at uh, Capital G on the show recently, and she said yeah. that she thought one of the biggest misconceptions that it's very hard to hire an exceptional and diverse team. I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you agree with this, one, and then two, what are your tips for building those teams, especially maybe from a startup perspective, when you don't have the salaries or budgets to compete with, in all honesty, the likes of Facebooks, Box, Google, the big titans of the valley? Yeah, so let's parse both the questions out. So on the, it's not as hard to hire exceptional and diverse teams. I feel like it's just hiring is just in general a difficult art. It's it's not something that I've at least been able to crack the code with. We As you get better with experience, you have less of the false positive and less kind of error rates in that. But there's still people that we hire that we're like, oh, this didn't work out. And then we have to make sure that we hire slow and fire fast in the areas where things don't work out. I would say, though, that there is just a general dearth of talent and and we are pretty big kind of proponents of making sure that the whole uh, notion of making sure that we encourage immigration, we encourage talent from all around the world to come in and be part of solving interesting problems is uh, continues to get pushed forward. So I don't think it's a slam dunk, easy thing in Silicon Valley to go out and hire talent. I think there's just a fundamental shortage of it. I also think that hiring talent that's diverse on a team basis isn't easy, but you have to prioritize it. And if you don't, you just will build a subpar company by the end of it. So what we don't do is we don't sacrifice uh, on timing when the talent is mediocre. We actually hold it out and make sure that we hire excellent people. And what was your second question again? And the second question was what tips would you have for startups looking to hire exceptional and diverse talent when they maybe don't have the budgets and salary costs to cover that maybe Box or Facebook would do? Yeah, so one of the things that we used as um, a technique in our team is with startups, what you tend to have is you know, when there are some people that are just really, really good at interviewing. And that doesn't mean that they're great employees or they could be great employees. They're just really exceptionally good at interviewing. And what you have to do is take away the charisma of someone who's interviewing well from the content and the substance that they can bring to the table from an execution perspective once they've come on board. And the only way to do that is actually create mock scenarios where you can work with them, with the team, because there's so much that's involved in working well. You might have a really smart person that doesn't have good, good chemistry with the team, and that wouldn't work out. They might not be a good culture fit. So what we try to do is when we hire people, we try to make sure that there's a small project where the entire team that's going to be working closely with that individual actually sits and spends five, six hours with that individual. And they come in and they present um, a problem or they facilitate a working session. So we actually get to see the working style of that individual. What that also does is gets that individual much more tied to the purpose of the company. And I don't think you can be hugely at delta on a scale. Uh, You have to be within the ballpark. But once you're within the ballpark, if the individual has a mentality that, you know, it's the highest bidder who wins, I always tell our employees, there will always be another employer who could probably pay you 10, 15, 20% more than what you're making here. The question is, in the long run, are we providing you enough of a platform for making sure that you can achieve your career goals and learn in a way that's, you know, going to be truly fulfilling and and you feel like you feel a sense of accomplishment. And if that does happen, typically people don't just jump because of money. They jump because there's an absence of purpose or something of that sort. So we try to go out and instill a sense of purpose and make sure that there's chemistry with the team. And you'll still lose your fair share from time to time. It's a competitive market, but you try to at least focus on the higher order bits rather than just uh, a few thousand here or there. Absolutely. It goes back to the element of uh, choosing a big and inspirational problem for people to follow, I guess. That's exactly right. Yep. 
no, I, I, I was intrigued because you said about, you said the word accomplishment there. And one element that you've uh, really accomplished a huge amount is in terms of building out of platforms. So I'd love to talk about this. And you said to me last time that the building out of platform businesses is not the same as building out apps businesses. I was really intrigued as to why you think this is and what the fundamental differences are between the two. Yeah, so the reason, firstly, it's important to understand why a platform business is important. If you think about most category leaders in a market, they tend to be platform companies, not just app companies. So what I mean by that is you actually have data in your system that other companies are able to leverage to go out and create further value for the customers based on your data. So they're actually building on top of you. That's the classic definition of platform. And it's pretty important that, you know, in order to be a category leader, that there's an ecosystem that you can take leverage of in the tailwind from the ecosystem. So it's pretty important that, and the reason we went with the platform is because we wanted to make sure that there were just certain class of problems we wouldn't be able to solve just by being just an apps company. Now, as you get to be a platform, there are certain massive differences between being a platform company or being, you know, having a platform mindset versus an app mindset. First one is in the apps world, you define a very clear set of use cases that you want to solve. And once you've defined those clear use cases, you make sure that you propagate those use cases out. You also encourage the use of the product around those use cases. In a platform, most of the times, most innovation happens in areas that you might have not even imagined. So the use case alone, the, the, the clarity of definition around a use case just doesn't apply and translate as well to a platform business. So that's the first one, which is you just have to have a very different mindset and make sure that you're building capabilities where you don't know what the end output is that people are going out and building against your APIs or against your SDKs. Do you have to worry about accountability with regards to that in terms of you don't know what they're building out and will it align to boxes, culture and mission? And does that matter? Yeah, so the way that we do it is, you know, one of the things that we've done within Box and with our platform is we have been maniacally focused on documentation, where we think of documentation as almost a product. So we have a product manager focused on documentation. And the reason for that is because sample apps, reference apps, blueprints, documentation that you might have around really going out and saying, these are the best ways to use the platform. Here are the best practices in building a great app. It's extremely important that that gets syndicated out to people who are building applications and specifically developers. So you can take out the friction, but also get the developer to really understand what your platform is going to be best at using. You know, but having said that, there is going to be a little bit of a loss of control because you just don't know what people are going to do. And so that's something that you have to just factor into the design of the platform and how you build it up. So that's the first kind of area that there's a big difference between platforms and apps. The second one that we found, at least, is the commercial model is really interesting with platform, where most of the customers that come to us with platform, the scale with which they're building out their vision on the platform is at a very different order of magnitude than the scale of going out and using an app. So, for example, a large customer of ours in our core app business is 300,000, 350,000 users, right? A large customer in the platform business could be millions of users, tens of millions of users. And so what you have to do is there's a commercial model, a pricing model that has to be very clearly articulated back to the developer and to the buyer that says, what's your pricing look like today to get me started? But what's pricing going to look like at scale? And especially 
especially if it's a software company going out and doing it, they might be they might need to operate within a gross margin constraint themselves. And so we have to make sure that the way that the commercial model works actually complies with the gross margin constraints that they have. And they really need to see that curve of what happens at scale from a pricing perspective. Otherwise, they're not going to go out and start building on your platform. So it's extremely important to have transparent pricing at scale, even though they might not start with this at scale pricing on day one. Mm-hmm. Okay. How do you determine pricing in the very early days of your platform? Yeah, so it's, it's a lot of trial and error. But one of the things that we just recently did was we launched a, a brand new pricing model. And the way that I think about pricing is if you can align yourselves and your success as a company completely with that of the customer, you tend to have a good pricing model. If the behaviors tend to be at odds with each other, you tend to have a very counterproductive pricing model. So let me give you an example. One of the things that I think SaaS as a, as a whole has moved the market to is engagement is much more important than feature density, right? So you can go out and build capability, but what's more important is how effectively are people using the features rather than how many features you have. And so the way that we think about pricing on our end is as we build a platform that people are going to use our platform to build applications themselves, one of the things that we have to really think about is how much are they going to engage their users? So what we want to do is make sure that you don't charge on dimensions which are going to be at odds with that customer, but charge on dimensions that are going to be completely promoting exactly what that customer wants to do. So in our case, what we did was we had started our pricing model based on a provisioned user model. So we said, okay, there's going to be a certain number of what we call app users, app users being users that are licensed to use the box app in a white label capacity within someone else's app. And what we found was there would be times that customers would say, I have 14 million or 18 million users. So whatever unit cost you have times 14 million just seems to be too high. So what we then did was we said, let's go out and create a resource-based pricing model, but also make sure that we are putting our money where our mouth is. And we will only go out and want to get paid when there's value that's created. And the value for a customer is created when someone's using their app with our product. So what we did was we actually completely changed the pricing model to say monthly active user base along with some resource like storage bandwidth and API calls. And what that did was fundamentally change the mindset of our developers even that were building on us saying, oh, this is great. So you're now going to help me in making sure that I can scale my adoption. And as I scale my adoption, you're going to get a portion of that value back remitted to you. But if I don't scale my adoption, then we all fail. And that's exactly the kind of partnership that you need to have as you move forward is just make sure that you're aligned in your core success. It can't be that you succeed and the customer fails. That's just a bad pricing model. So always ask yourself the question, in your pricing model, when you succeed, is the customer also succeeding? But I do want to dive into G2 60-second SASTA. So a quick fire round where I say a short statement and you give your immediate thoughts in about 60 seconds. How does that sound? All right, sounds good. So what do you believe that most around you do not? I actually believe that you shouldn't monetize your value to the fullest potential, but only monetize to about 30 or 40% of the potential. Because what that does is creates a sentiment within the customer that they're getting more value than what they've paid for. And oftentimes, most people try to go out and squeeze every last dollar out of the customer rather than saying, let's make sure that we actually leave some on the table 
and only take a certain amount of the, of the value that you've created back in monetization back to you. Why businesses will find the rules in the next one year very different to those in the, over the last 50? Because the half-life of companies' business models has completely changed. And it's, you know, in, in the year 2000, Fortune 500, if you look at the Fortune 500 list, 52% of those companies are no longer on the list in the year 2015. So wow. what you're starting to see is like over half the companies are traded. So the half-life of business models has actually gone down from you know 25, 30, 40 years to seven years. And so most companies need to make sure they re- rethink their business model every seven years. You know, look at Netflix. They've actually had the third business model now from, you know, shipping DVDs to making sure that they do streaming media to original content. And every single business model almost killed the previous one. But what about the favorite SaaS reading material? What are your must-reads? I'm not just placating this to you, but I do um, listen to, um, you know, SaaS podcasts uh, quite frequently. Uh, I also love the A16Z uh, podcast. Sonal does a great job with uh, interviewing some of the people. And one of my other favorites is, uh, uh, you know, Recode by Kara Swisher. Absolutely. It seems we have very similar the taste uh what do you know now though that you wish you'd known at the beginning now this could be at the beginning of your time at box or at the beginning of the time pre-box so i'll tell you at the beginning of my time at silicon valley what i didn't know that i know now and it's that you know my biggest learning i've had in the valley is that extremely smart people make insanely logical decisions for exactly the right reasons that end up killing companies and it's it's this fascinating thing that happens where you've got these really bright people that are making the right decisions with all the right intent in mind, but they just end up getting disrupted all the time because they didn't see something coming around the corner. And so what we tend to do at Box is try to stay extremely paranoid about, we know we're all smart. We know we all have our hearts in the right place. We all know we make logical decisions, but which ones of those decisions can actually end up killing us? And we always are thinking about that and being paranoid. I have to ask on that note, what's the right way to view competition? I've interviewed people who fall in the camp of only the paranoid survive. I've also interviewed row your own race style uh, competitive analysis. Which do you fall under? So I view that the first thing you have to think about is not competition, but customer value. You have to work backwards from customer value. But in the area of competition, we don't think about the tactical advantages, but more the sustained long-term advantages you can create from a business model perspective. Most disruptions happen at a business model level, Mm -hmm. not at a technology level. So what we try to do is make sure that the things that we're going to go out and create a moat around are things that our competitors just wouldn't be motivated to create a moat around because that's not something that they do. That's not something that's part of their ethos. And that's not something that they can realistically do because of the position that they have in the market. And those are the ones which actually create this kind of discontinuous leverage for you. You said there about kind of uh, what you wish you'd known at the start of your time in the Valley. And we're moving out of the quick fire. So no 60 second pressure here. Okay. I want right. to finish on more general uh, tips for startups generally. You said before that you should do things that do not scale so that you can do things that can sustainably scale. I'm confused. <laughs> what, what do we mean? by this yeah so in most ideas what ends up happening especially as you start getting bigger and you have a second product in the market that you're launching or something of that sort what uh, or you know the, the 15th product that you're launching oftentimes as companies get big what they don't think about is you know there's a you can't every idea 
idea is not a billion dollar idea at the beginning. You might actually have to first do the hard work and see whether your idea actually has substance and merit before you can in fact scale it. So I'll give you three or four examples. Airbnb actually sent people out to take pictures of homes in a very non-scalable way before they knew that that idea would actually work and stick. And then they decided on figuring out how to scale it. They didn't go out and say, how am I going to scale this first? First, they said, let's try this idea out. We do something very similar at Box. We have this program called F10. And F10 is a flagship 10 program. Every single time we launch a new product, we try to make sure that we actually have 10 flagship customers where we will do whatever it takes to get those 10 customers up and running. If that means we have to fly out with engineers out to their facility and keep them over there for two weeks, we'll do that to make sure that that customer takes out all the friction and they can go get running with our product. Why is that? Because if with white glove treatment, you can't get your product working that meets the customer's requirements and creates magic moments for them, chances of doing it at scale don't even exist. So first do the things that don't scale to really get to product market fit and to really allow yourself to think about you know, whether or not you're truly creating discontinuous leverage and sustained value. And once you've done that, then start thinking of scaling. And so it's the, you know, get to product market fit, figure out a kind of repeatable selling motion, and then go out and scale. Don't prematurely scale because you'll, you'll just have garbage in the market and that won't really go create a retention curve for you that's a desirable one. I do also want to pull you up on one element that you've said before, and it's on the importance mm-hmm. of implementing the 10x rule for startups. So I'm intrigued, what does that really equate to with regards to, say, product roadmap and, and startup operations with regards to the 10x implementation? Yeah, what we've learned is... In in most human behavior, uh, 20% improvement on something that you're already doing is not enough of a motivator for someone to change behavior. You have to be 10 times better than what they currently have in order to go out and change behavior. So do something, do a few things, but do them so differently and so well that there's no way for you to justify not changing a behavior. And if you look at any of the great companies that are out there, you know, look at Airbnb, Tesla, Netflix, Box, Uber, any of these companies that you might see, there's always been a massive delta between the current way of doing things and the way that it was happening. Uh, Uber didn't just try to make better taxis. They fundamentally changed, Uber and Lyft fundamentally changed the way that, you know, the entire transportation market worked. Tesla didn't just try to make a new car that was electric. They actually changed the entire ecosystem around cars and make car a software product. So you have to think in a 10x mode, otherwise you actually don't change human behavior because most people don't think about your product as consuming their day. They think about their day consuming their day. So your product's a small part of the day. And the only reason they'd be motivated to change it is if you've given them enough of a reason to do so. And that's only when you've created a disproportionate value compared to the effort to change. And speaking of disproportionate values, you two, uh, you've provided more than disproportionate value with regards to uh, content for time in this interview. So I cannot thank you enough for giving up the time today to come on the show. And it's been such a pleasure. Harry, yeah, pleasure was all mine. Thank you for having me. So fantastic to have G2 on the show there and so many brilliant takeaways from that episode and if you enjoyed the episode with G2 and would like to see more from us then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two b's to see all things behind the Sasta podcast or you can follow the one and only Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK that really is a must. But before we leave you today we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business and that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google trusted third party review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors and publishes 
publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more. Reviews.io is the only solution on the market which allows businesses to see a 360-degree view of their reputation across the web with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that's looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. Unlike competing platforms, Reviews.io do not agree with long-term contracts and even has a 15-day trial for all SASTA listeners. Simply head over to Reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode.